الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على رسول الكريم وعلى آله وصحبه ومن اختلف يوم الدين All praise due to Allah and may Allah's peace and blessings be on his last Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam and on all those who follow the path of righteousness until the last day The topic of today's khutbah was that of the struggle between truth and falsehood. The Imam mentioned that this struggle, though we may find ourselves deeply involved in it, and in our involvement, tend to lose track of the roots of this struggle, the fact is that the struggle is as ancient as mankind. It's not a new struggle. What we are facing, those of us who strive to uphold the truth, these difficulties are not something which have appeared for the first time. They have been around from the time of Adam. When Allah created Adam and He placed him and his wife in paradise <coughs> and uh, specified for them that they were not to eat of a particular tree. They were tricked by Satan. And this is the foundation of the relationship between Satan and the satanic forces, the soldiers of falsehood, and all who would try to uphold the truth, the commandments of God, which has been revealed to us through the prophets. We know that when Satan was first commanded to bow to Adam, along with the angels, among whom he was, though he was not an angel in himself, he was in fact from another order of creation known as the jinn. When he was commanded, along with the angels, to bow, in recognition of the place of honor which Allah had placed Adam and all who would follow him among mankind in relationship to the rest of creation, the angels bowed because they did not have free will. They only did what they were commanded. Whereas in the case of Satan, whose name is known in Arabic as Iblis, he had a free choice to obey or to disobey. And he chose to disobey, claiming that he was superior to Adam because Allah had created him from fire and created Adam from clay. And this in fact is a falsehood because Satan was not superior. Allah had commanded him to bow to Adam. Allah had informed him by that command that Adam was in fact superior. And Satan knew was superior. However, his pride in himself led him to claim this falsehood of his superiority and thereby disobey God and cause himself to be cursed till the last day. So, 
Here we have falsehood being a product of pride. According to the Islamic system, then pride has a particularly despised status. Pride. Because this led Satan in the first place to uphold the falsehood of his superiority and disobey God and damn himself to, to hell. Naturally, this must be something which is not, its danger is not limited to that particular time, but it is something of a universal danger. As such, we find Prophet Muhammad himself warning us by saying that no one who has a mustard seed's worth of pride in his heart will enter paradise. No one who has a mustard seed's worth of pride in his heart will enter paradise. This is very serious. This is something that each and every one of us has to struggle to remove. Because it's very easy for us to develop feelings of pride. Whether because of some skill we have developed, money we have, you know, uh, status in society, family background, race, uh, whatever. People have feelings of pride which come out of these circumstances which in fact are not really a product of their own efforts. They are according to God's destiny. No one chooses the family in which he is born or the tribe or the clan to which he belongs. This is according to the destiny of Allah. So, it cannot really be a source of pride. False pride. And this pride in ancestry led the uncle of the Prophet Muhammad Abu Talib who knew well that Muhammad was a prophet of God because he raised him himself and he knew him to be truthful and he experienced some of the miracles which God had given Prophet Muhammad yet on his deathbed when the Prophet begged him to declare his belief in Allah he chose instead to remain attached to the beliefs of his foreparents. His other relatives were there telling him are you going to give up the belief the beliefs of our foreparents? Are you saying they were all wrong? They were all misguided? Lost have you no pride in your family? And he chose, in spite of his knowledge of the truth, he chose based on pride, falsehood, which also again damned him to the hellfire. So we can see that pride is something which is really despised in Islam because of the falsehood that it produces. The concepts which it promotes, which are fundamentally against the concepts of Islam. We find the Prophet Muhammad saying that whoever calls to nationalism, tribalism, is not of us. Why? Because the call of nationalism to tribalism these are opposed fundamentally to the brotherhood of faith. Because when a person is a nationalist, then it becomes more important to him to maintain his ties to his fellow national 
brothers, brothers by the nation that he belongs to, they become more important to him than the brotherhood of faith. So we will find, for example, today, Arab nationalism displaces the brotherhood of faith. And as such, we have seen the products in terms of the destruction of a number of these Arab states in the name of Arab nationalism. And this is so deeply embedded in the psyche of the people that in spite of this destruction, partial destruction which Allah has brought on these people, they still continue to talk about Arab this and Arab that. So the struggle, the struggle of truth against falsehood is one which has its roots in the struggle against pride and it reaches all facets of human existence whenever an individual or a people choose to follow the path of truth. Once they have chosen the path of truth, then the forces of evil will be constantly against them to try to replace that truth with the falsehoods of nationalism, corruption, etc. Now this struggle Sometimes it is open and clear what those who uphold falsehood are calling to. In the case, for example, of the media, where we could see uh, magazines of corruption, movies, video, uh, newspapers, the concepts, the concepts of falsehood may be very clear. However, at the same time, Zimam pointed out, there are other methods of falsehood which can easily capture even the minds of those who uphold the truth. And that is the falsehoods which come through slander, the spreading of false tales about people. The Prophet Muhammad had asked or informed his companions that one who backbites is one who speaks about his brother in terms which his brother would not like spoken. The companions asked him, what if what was said was true? And he said that this is in fact backbiting. Whereas if it's not true, then it is slander. It is an even graver sin. So we find Islam opposed to backbiting and to slander because these are channels through which falsehood can be spread in such a way that they catch the believers and make them a part of the forces that are against the truth in the society. For example, you may find certain individuals who will praise Islam, you know, talk about the greatness of Islam, this, that, and the other, and in the same breath, they will attack certain individuals who are working for the sake of Islam. They will either bring some information which is distorted or uh, maybe some errors which are committed by the people, you know, and they're, uh, they're minor errors but they're made to appear to be or they may introduce certain slanders about these people. So what happens is that on one hand this person appears to be a supporter of Islam but on the other hand by his 
attacking those people who are in the process of spreading Islam or teaching Islam, etc. They are undermining the truth. They are using the truth, you know, as a mean, as a guise, in the sense, as a, a disguise, to to cover their true intentions. And this is something which you know the media utilizes also. You have certain magazines which may call themselves Islamic, but at the same time, within the articles uh, which are being presented. There are certain attacks on Islam which are coming about through slander and uh, distorted information. The Imam mentioned the incident which happened in the time of the Prophet Muhammad wherein Aisha anha, the third wife of the Prophet Muhammad was accused of adultery and this story which was started by hypocrites people who are in fact non-Muslims pretending to be Muslims but it spread by way of Muslims in fact at the end when the truth came out that it was false Allah revealed the verse uh, absolving Aisha from any blame three of the companions of the Prophet Muhammad two males and a female were publicly lashed 80 lashes for their part in spreading this rumor and Allah said in the Quran you know, concerning this incident and it's called the Hadith Al-Ifq uh, that Though you may consider this to be harmful for you, it is in fact good for you. <coughs> this slander which was spread, what it did, though it created some harm, some dishonor to a certain degree to the Prophet Muhammad you know, bad feelings on the part of Aisha and others, her family, etc. At the same time, it was a means of exposing those hypocrites who are intent on trying to destroy Islam from within as well as it provided a lesson for the Muslim community in avoiding the spread of rumors Prophet Muhammad to emphasize this also had said that one who was involved in constantly spreading rumors Namam would not enter paradise one who constantly spreads rumors everything he hears he passes on such an individual will not enter paradise so Islam has warned the believers warned them to be careful about feelings within themselves of pride which may lead them to uphold falsehood also against the spread of rumors that if they hear because rumors are constantly moving around in the society if you hear something you shouldn't pass it on the only time you may pass on information which may be disliked about a person if that information is true the only time you may do so is when somebody's rights are being threatened in the case of marriage a person wants to get married and the woman she seeks information about that person it is your duty if information is sought from you you know something about this person you should inform her and we have this from the practice of the Prophet Muhammad himself one of the female companions had come to him and asked him you know that uh, Abu Sufyan and Amr ibn al-As had proposed to her her name was Fatima bint Qais 
And uh, the Prophet he said that, you know, Abu Sufyan is stingy with his money. He's stingy with his money. This is something nobody likes to be said about them. But it is something as a woman going into marriage to know. This is a man who is not going to, you know, easily give you the money that you might need or want in family circumstances. And he went on to say that Amr ibn al-As, he beats his women. You have men who beat their women. If a woman is going to get married at the situation, she should be informed that she knows what she's getting into. And of course, no man likes that information to be spread about so-and-so beats his women. Nobody goes and tells people, but neighbors may know people. You know, the word spreads maybe to some degree around some of the friends. So if somebody is going to get into a marital situation, and they should be informed. Of and the Prophet ﷺ informed. And then he went on to tell her that it would be better if she married Usama ibn Zayd, the son of a freed slave, who had been given to the Prophet Muhammad Now, this is an example wherein such, can, such information may be passed on. Also in cases where uh, somebody, for example, is about to get involved in a business deal. You know, you inform a friend of yours, or a friend of yours informs you that he's going to get into a business deal with such and such a person. Now, if you've had some dealings with this person, you know, which are bad, they borrowed money and didn't return it. And they got into business and it fell through and they didn't fulfill their end of the bargain, whatever. Then it is your duty to inform this person. Not, you know, to go overboard now and attack, you know, take out all your hatred and, and dislike for this person now and, you know, put that on the other person. No. Just to inform them that you had business dealings with this person in the past and such and such happened. So they are aware. If they want to go ahead, Fine, but it is, their, it is your duty to inform them in such cases. Similarly, in the courts, you know, if a case is being tried or something and uh, information is requested by the judge which will uh, be crucial in the case, then you are required to give up that information. So, it is for us to constantly be aware that the struggle between truth and falsehood is not something which occurs in particular places or to particular people. It is something which will occur with every person who seeks to uphold the truth. Once we have chosen Islam as our way, and Islam is the ultimate truth, then all of the forces of falsehood will be arranged against us. Our declaration of Islam is a declaration of war against the forces of falsehood. So we will be faced throughout our lives with many difficulties. There will be many circumstances where people will disappoint us, where our name may be defamed, bad things may be said about us, but we should realize that this is something which is a part of upholding the truth. It is something that the Prophet Muhammad faced throughout his life and the Prophets before him faced. When we read in the stories of the Qur'an concerning the Prophets, we see, oftentimes, when the Prophets came to the people, calling them to righteousness, you know, they, they, the response of the people of the upper crust of the society was, you know, that you who are coming to call us, who are you? You are nobody. You know, you are not of the same status as us. They were called magicians. They were asked to do things which were ridiculous. Fun was made of them. This was the way of the prophets. And 
if we choose to uphold the truth, then we have chosen the way of the prophets. And as such, we have to be prepared to stand steadfast throughout our lives in opposing falsehood, whether it is directed towards us by others or directed towards others who are upholding that falsehood, we have to stand up in defense. We cannot sit and hear bad things be, being said about the truth and just hate it in our hearts. No. As long as we are capable of opposing it, we should oppose it openly. Only when it becomes, you know, we have no other choice but to hate it in our hearts, may we just hate it in our hearts. And we should always be involved in prayer, asking for Allah's strength for ourselves, His protection against the forces of falsehood, His support to those who uphold the truth. We should pray for them as we should pray for ourselves. And that's, you know, basically the essence of the khutbah today. Uh, it was actually quite brief. If you have any uh, questions or thoughts you'd like to express concerning the struggle between truth and falsehood, welcome. Maybe you want to elaborate on that a little more, you know, make it a little clearer to everybody. Well, you know, uh, as we know, particular, you know, point because what I know of the Imam, that doesn't really sound like him. You know, I would say within the kingdom itself, you have different camps where some have upheld certain positions and others have spoken against them. I mean, you don't necessarily even have to go outside the country. They exist within the country, you know. Uh, you have, for example, even uh, in the case of, say, <clears throat> you know, certain Islamic movements which were developing, for example, in uh, Tunisia and Algeria and so on, so which is going on. You, you can see what has happened in the case of Algeria where uh, to crush that Islamic movement, you see, the, um, a, 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 a state of, of emergency was, was created within the state and the leaders of that movement were then accused of sedition and, and plotting against the government and so so their whole image was distorted in the media to make them appear to be you know actually against Islam when in fact they were the supporters of Islam and these same individuals who were leading the, the Algerian uh, socialist movement you know have you know divorced themselves from the socialist party you know talking Islam and so on so to try to give that image of Islam that they are in fact for Islam, you know, but not the way these, you know, uh, uh, fundamentalist, uh, you know, extremists want to try to do it, you know. I think, you know, references could be found there also. So, I would hate to think that, 
it would be just uh, an issue of you know, the position of some of the scholars here as opposed to some outside. Because in terms of the events which have happened concerning the you know, American presence, etc., I mean, you had a number of scholars internally who were opposed, as well as those who support it. One of the lessons that was uh, brought out from that situation was that the Muslim, when he hears news, uh, not only should he not simply pass it on, but he should investigate. And uh, this is what I remember, that he should investigate, to query the person controlling or <laughs> query someone else to find out the veracity of the statement, is it true or not true. Uh, if we apply that principle to allowed to the situation in Algeria, the situation that happened here a few months ago and is ongoing, or any of these other situations, if we query those, then we have to ask ourselves, how do we query them? On one hand, we get the, uh, the appearance of the person who is seriously concerned about basic Islamic principles called the fundamentalist. And on the, on the other hand, we have those opposed, whoever that's supposed to be. And we tend to, uh, if we're making some attempt within ourselves to thrive, uh, to please the laws of the we tend to automatically be on the side of the quote-unquote fundamentalists and against those who oppose whatever movement that happens to be. Uh, I only know about the Algerian situation or the Tunisian situation from the newspaper here, the English newspaper here, so that means really I know practically nothing. Uh, I was in Sudan, however, for a period of eight years and saw a quote-unquote fundamentalist group thrive for power, and although I was never, you know, uh, close to the inner circles of that group, I'm speaking of Sudan, called the Jebha, uh, I, I don't know if it's all food of the Ikhwan or the Ikhwan Sudan, you know, I've heard different people say different things about it, but basically that, that trend of uh, thought. And watching from a, a step or two removed, but nonetheless within the society, seeing how they function within the society, uh, and seeing how they're portrayed outside the society, there is a major difference. So when we get back to the issue of, of verifying, of checking, it becomes very, very complicated for us, to, unless we can get on the inside to see, is this group really striving to flee the law, or is this group using the name of Islam for their own goals? We know, of course, that Islam was, on a global level, was weakened when the, the Kufar decided that we can't fight Islam from outside, we'll attack Islam from the inside. And they co-opted and changed some, tried to change some books, and they bought off uh, Muslim leaders, so forth and so on. Great success was made in breaking up the Islamic Empire at that point in time. So, for us all, as we look at these different situations outside of Saudi Arabia, or even inside of about the only thing that we have to go on is our limited knowledge of Quran and Sunnah. And keeping an open mind, I, I think maybe, unless we can get on the inside of this, it may be premature for us to say that a group calling themselves whatever, 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 are really in fact trying to please Allah or the Lord because we can just as easily be, end up on the wrong side, even in our emotional support, because they say we are for Islam. And if we step back and say, well, everybody thinks we are for Islam. So it, it behooves us to really try to do our own homework. I mean, unless we can get a lot of information on these groups, maybe this, as the brother said, just don't pass an opinion one way or another, don't pass the information on. And more importantly in our minds, don't frame an opinion of this group before the right, 
from the Quran or you looking for a statement of Prophet Muhammad what is it? Let's take for example you know uh, in uh, I guess in Western uh, uh, jurisprudence we have laws for slander like that is there, is there some parallel yeah in the Quran I mean, we have you know concerning uh, slander concerning uh, a, a, a person who is accused of adultery or fornication if a person is falsely accused or if the person who makes the accusation does not produce four witnesses then the law it is stated in the Quran is that they receive 80 lashes well you know things of, le- things of a lesser level this is now left up to the judge you know, the Islamic judge to determine the harm, you know, how often it has taken place and he can now set a penalty which would be less than this upper penalty which has been set by God concerning, uh, you know, slander concerning fornication, right? You know, uh, which is like a person's honor, you know, destruction of a person's honor on the highest level, right? In terms of Islamic society, chastity, it's considered like one of the greatest dishonors, the most dishonorable things you could say about a person. So that is the maximum, 80 lashes. Less than that, you know, the, the judge then can judge, you know, according to the uh, circumstances. And the penalty in this case is called, it comes under the heading of what is known as ta'azir. Whereas in the case of the, the, um, the 80 lashes, this is called had because this one has been set by Allah, the other one is left, is discretionary, left up to the judge to choose. concerning this person. Is what he's, he, he's calling for Islam? Well, no, it's the duty then of the person who is being asked to inform you concerning that. You know, in terms of what do you think personally about the person, that's another thing. You see? So, if you make it clear in terms of how, what you're asking in your question, you know, what is the Islamic view on this person, you know, and his teachings? Then that kind of information can be, can easily be given, you know. And it's perfectly legitimate. But when it goes into the area of, well, I feel that so-and-so is a so-and-so, you know, uh, then that's where you're stepping beyond the bounds. 
recently I was in a discussion and the shape towards where answering questions is. Is that the question in reference to homosexuals? And the way the question is presented to him is in the light of um, these people having uh, been born this way having hormonal imbalances, Well, the issue of homosexuality is looked at not as something which is a biological problem in the sense of like a sickness which is, can be looked at biologically speaking, right? Uh, or in the sense that, you know, people are born that way. From Islamic perspective, it's not looked at in that fashion. This is something that people are, a way of life that people have chosen. It is looked at as, as a, a distortion of human nature. It is looked at as a sickness in the society, but not a sickness in the sense that, you know, people may have some sicknesses which you have to allow for, you know, a person is mad, a person is insane. I mean, this is a sickness, an imbalance which is taking place in his body and we have to accept him and, you know, help him to survive in the society. Whereas in the case of homosexuality, he's not looked at in this fashion. I mean, he's looked at as an enemy of the society. Who, unless he seeks treatment in the sense that he goes to, you know, the medical uh, people who have some kind of, um, you know, psychiatrist or whatever who can help him uh, to deal with his problem in that sense, unless he seeks treatment in this fashion, not say that Islam would, would tell the psychiatrist to reject this person. No, if a person comes to you seeking help or a homosexual comes to you, even as an uh, average Muslim and saying, well, listen, you know, I got this problem, you know, can you give me some advice, can you help me? But, you know, you should try to help the person. But such a person, if he is caught expressing his sickness, then the society deals with him quite harshly. I mean, he's executed. One who is involved in homosexual activity, and one who, uh, you know, allows it to be done to himself, you know, both of these people are executed, according to Islamic law. And uh, there, I mean, the, the, the line is quite clear, and this is not something, you know, which will be modified in time, you know, as in Christianity, it was clearly something opposed by the church, by the teachings of the prophets, which remained within the uh, books that, of scriptures that are, you know, held by the church. I mean, they were opposed to it, you know, both Judaism and Christianity, there are clear, you know, uh, laws against it, to calling for the execution of these people too, which is there in the Bible. However, because Christianity, you know, is man-made, it will modify itself to become acceptable with the times and the people that it finds itself amongst. So you find, you know, that the position of the church towards homosexuality in many of the different uh, sects has changed and modified so much so that you have now even homosexual churches where the minister himself is a homosexual and his congregation are homosexual, you know, and they're accepted within certain, you know, church bodies. So that kind of, you know, change, which even in, in, in the medical profession, uh, homosexuality was looked at in, in the past as being a um, distortion 
a deviant behavior, whereas now the medical profession has been forced to reclassify it as alternative behavior, and that in, in fact it is not in itself deviant. Sure, of course, yeah. You know, the, the, the case of the people of Lot, Prophet Lut, we know they, as referred to in the Quran, these are the first people, as a whole people who chose to, to marry, yes, even. I mean, you even have, you know, lesbian women, you know, having children by artificial insemination and, you know, all these kind of things happening. Uh, it is now, you know, becoming such a norm that uh, we tend to think that the, the, the chances of, of, of a lot of punishment coming down on the society as a whole, just for that alone, you know, are quite great. If those who uphold righteousness, you know, do not take a firm stand and, you know, overcome this movement within the United States and elsewhere in the West. Sure, this is... And, you know, to be, to be quite fair to, you know, to when we talk about, you know, homosexuality, we cannot just talk about it in terms of just the West. Because in this part of the world also, it is rampant. It is quite rampant. You know, wherein it is accepted as, you know, where, where there's a separation of the sexes, you know, and it has become accepted amongst young people that they may practice this whilst they're young and then when they're able to get married they stop doing it and carry on. And it may not be the form that we know it in the West where people have chosen this as lifestyles from, you know, uh, from early life until till death, you know. But even this form, I mean, this is as heinous, as despicable. You know, there is no excuse for it. There is no, you know, excuses can be made that it should be opposed, you know, in, in all of its forms in society. You know, we have judging people by the things that the Prophet has given us to judge people by. We don't even be ashamed of it. Because what happens is now, you know, that the, the West and the propaganda against Islam is making us look like fundamentalists, uh, making us look like we're um, the extremists, this is the new word that they're using now, extremists. The fundamentalism is just not hard enough anymore now. Now they're using the word extremist. And it's making us look like a tag for extremists. You know, you can have more than one wife, but you guys chop off heads, you chop off hands, look at this and you're backwards. To the point that it makes us, you know, it makes us feel that, you know, okay, maybe something's wrong with us. Maybe this is not, it's not, it's not what it's meant to be. But the thing is, we have to know that it is. Yeah. The thing about the word extremist, I think about it. The extremist defines extremely well. You know, made it as uh, simple as possible, I think, because the best way to look at it is to say that if I accuse you of being an extremist, then you are an extremely different person. Uh, because there's no, unless you accept some place to be the, the standard, you can't have an extreme in any direction. 
that which is by statement, that which is by his action, or that which occurred in his presence. But normally speaking, when they, this division you're referring to, this is usually discussed in relationship to the Sunnah Tashri'iyya, the legal Sunnah. How does the legal Sunnah come? The legal Sunnah comes either by a statement of the Prophet where he has said, do this or don't do this, or it's better you do this, better you don't do this, or he has shown by his actions, by constantly doing this thing, right, which is within the confines of the religion without a doubt. You know, for example, like his praying the two sunnahs of Fajr, right? This is something he never gave up. Though as a traveler, you are, you know, allowed to cut down right just to the compulsory and even shorten the compulsory which are four units down to two. He used to, even while traveling, do the two sunnahs of Fajr. So from this action, it is, it classifies that those two sunnahs as being highly recommended to be done. And the last category was that of sunnah taqririya, something which is again directly attached with the religious uh, affairs, you know, where for example, after Salat al-Fajr, uh, the Prophet ﷺ had said that there was no prayer after Fajr until the, the rising of the sun. On one occasion, after Salat al-Fajr, an individual got up to pray. And the Prophet ﷺ asked him, what do you do? And he said he was praying the two units, voluntary units, Sunnah, which he missed doing before the compulsory. And the Prophet ﷺ remained quiet. He went and did it. So his uh, quiet acceptance, that is what they call the Sunnah Taqririya. But now, when it, has, when, it, when, it, when it involves things which have no direct relationship, things or involves things which have no direct relationship to the, the uh, religious practices, then it is within the Sunnah Tashri'iyya, which, uh, I'm sorry, Sunnah Tabi'iyya, the natural Sunnah, you know, which um, you may do or not do, and which has no specific merit. We ask Allah to help us to be steadfast when slander and pride is directed towards us, for us to realize within ourselves that this is the natural uh, difficulties which we are bound to face throughout our lives once we have chosen the path of truth. We ask that you give us the strength to stay on that path until we die and inherit paradise. Amen. Well, okay, but, yeah.